0: So welcome to Reflection as a Service. This is our seventh episode, James. Is that exciting or what? Seven's a magic number. It is a magic number. That's right. I need to put a put a name on it so that it's a little easier to remember. Um, we will call it the Brian Frick episode. How about that? Frickin' awesome. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if we you're can so, use that. So, you sound spooky today. Um, so what we're gonna, I think we can use it and if we will, um, we're really excited to have you with us. I am Paul Merrill. I'm joined by James Jeffers. That's me. We are here to talk about technology, software engineering, and entrepreneurship at, on Reflection as a Service. Today we're going to talk mostly about software engineering. I found Brian by going to Agile RTP here in the Triangle, which is a really great meetup for folks who are interested in agile development and agile methodologies. Um, Brian was speaking at the event and he was talking about human centered design and he brought a whole bunch of different ideas together that I thought were terrific. So afterwards I stopped and talked to him briefly and said, Hey, come join us on reflection as a service. And so that's what he's going to do tonight. Let's get started. Right now, I'd like to introduce our guest, Brian Frick. I heard him recently at Agile RTP, a local meetup here in the Triangle area, and he was terrific. He talked about user experience, and that was the main reason that I wanted to bring him in. It's Human-Centered Design in an Agile Context was the name of his talk. What we're going to do is we're going to have these slides that he presented then up on the website so that anybody who listens to the podcast can open those slides up at the same time. or. Look at them later, but right now I'd like to introduce them. Brian Frick has over 16 years of experience developing software as a government contractor in a variety of roles. In 2010, he initiated an effort to experiment with Scrum in an organization entrenched in a waterfall process appraised at CMO my level three. Subsequently, most of the organization has transitioned to an agile approach. Mr. Frick holds a bachelor's degree in business administration from UNC at Chapel Hill, as well as master's and bachelor's degrees in computer science from NC State. Brian, welcome to the
1: show. Thank you very much, Paul. I appreciate that.
0: Thanks. We're happy to have you. And you know, the first thing I got to start with is how do you get one degree at UNC and the other at State without having some kind of real, really weird internal problem
1: <laughs> yeah that's a good question uh i think i probably do have a weird internal problem but my wife did the same thing so it's a good match for us So we it's both a house, went to, i'm sorry it's a house divided on both fronts <laughs> on both fronts exactly gotcha and we did it in the same order too we both oh. went to unc and then we went to nc state excellent wow cool well they're both really
0: good schools i know that um, and I, I'm it's it's nice to have you on. You know, when I when I saw you talk, I had so many thoughts about what you were saying at Agile RTP, talking about human centered design and kind of the way that you you talk through it. Um, maybe if you don't mind, give us an idea of that talk. If you can give our listeners kind of a, a, a high level summary of what the talk was about, and we'll we'll start diving down from there.
1: Yeah. So the talk was about how. Uh, Different different concepts from uh, the books, The Fifth Discipline, uh, The Design of Everyday Things, uh, Scrum and XP from the Trenches, and even um, a book called The Nature of Order, how different concepts in, in those books relate. And in particular, I was speaking about human-centered design and uh, the different disciplines that are presented in a book entitled The Fifth Discipline, um, which was written by S- Peter Senge.
0: Yeah, and I think that's the one that you went back to the most, like you're saying. Um, and I, I just, I found a lot of, of interesting things about about this as you were going through it. So you started off talking about systems thinking, and what did you mean by that?
1: Yeah, systems thinking is where um, effectively cause and effect are not completely disparate things. Uh, in a, a linear relationship, you would obviously think that there's a cause and then there's an effect. But with systems thinking, there's the notion that uh, cause can become effect, or and effect can become cause. They, they form a circular relationship. And beyond that, uh, there there are linkages between those circular relationships, so that uh, what we would normally try to attribute as a cause uh, may only be a symptom. So getting at uh, the root cause can be more difficult, and often. There isn't a single root cause. There's multiple causes, and um, the effects can can enhance uh, some of the causes. So we can contribute to our own problems uh, if we just address symptoms. So it encourages the notion of systems thinking. Encourages to think more holistically, not just linearly.
0: Gotcha. And so, how did, how does that factor back into design?
1: Yeah, it, it turns out that there's a, a fairly natural relationship between design thinking and those disciplines. Um, one of the primary reasons is that um, with design thinking, you begin the process by em, em, employing empathy. Um, and the reason that you, you employ empathy is to really just observe what uh, your users or customers or, or, or people are, are doing to uh, accomplish some 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 effort and the reason that you you start with empathy is because you don't want to apply a mental model onto a situation that may not be appropriate so w- it turns out one of the, the disciplines that that's spoken about in the fifth discipline is about mental models and how those mental models, models can bias our thinking and so it's just a natural relationship there, um, and and I can speak about the um, if you want me to, I can speak about the relationships with the other parts of uh, yeah. human centered design. Yeah. So uh, the next step in human centered design is um, define, and so define relates to uh, the the d- different disciplines um, in the sense that we just talked about systems thinking uh rather than uh rather than start with the mental models you basically put down all the observations that you've collected and you synthesize what might be the objectives uh and you do that by clustering the different uh observations into common areas uh and then you begin to interpret what those areas are um so it's a synthetic way of thinking um go ahead let me let me stop you so when
0: you're talking about observations you're saying and empathy you're saying that generally when we would go to design a system we would try to have empathy for a user and the way that they would be intending to use the system however many times it's better to observe and you're saying you would observe users using the system trying to withhold any prejudice about it, any biases, which are the mental models you're talking about, uh, and go forward from there. Am I getting this right?
1: That's That's exactly right. Yeah. Okay. With okay. Withhold judgment, uh, withhold analysis or even synthesis at the beginning to just collect the observations about what it is they're doing. Okay.
0: And so collecting the observations, um, and maybe I'm, maybe I'm getting off topic here, but what, how do you collect observations without having biases?
1: Yeah, well, that's probably nearly impossible to do. But uh, <laughs> the, the intent is that uh, to you, you take a, um, a an ethnographic tool called um, contextual inquiry, uh, which is you you go out and you you don't have the intent of offering solutions or pointing out how the user may improve what they're doing, but you simply want to understand uh, their activity without even without even presuming exactly what what it is they're trying to accomplish. Um, You you may already know generally that uh, they're in a specific domain, but you want to withhold judgment because the problem that you may uh, have thought they were experiencing at the beginning may not exist or it may just be a symptom of a a larger uh, root cause. So with contextual inquiry, you you, you go out just to at first... uh, observe and document your observations. So ideally, um, the observations would be quotes uh, from the user. Um, when you do contextual inquiry, you actually observe the person uh, doing an activity and you ask them to speak out loud about what it is that uh, they're doing.
0: So, so I had several thoughts about this. Now, number one is you're, we're talking about designing systems and a lot of times that means that that's related to how the user interface is designed. Um, And you're talking about doing the design work by observing people using a design, which seems like a little chicken and the egg there. Like, how do you how do you do that without a user interface? Um, Maybe maybe you can talk about that a little bit.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, Part of the process is to look at look at their activities as a whole, not just look at the tool that they may be using to accomplish uh, their tasks, because it's almost always the case that uh, the tool, if it's, a, if it's a piece of software or a website, it's only one part of a larger process. It's possible that the, the tool that already exists, that maybe that you want to enhance, is not even the pain point in uh, the process uh, that they're using to accomplish a, a goal. Um, so, at first, you you want to you you really want to understand what is the the um, entirety of what they're doing. So the, the tool may exist or it may not exist. Uh, if it does exist, you want to look at it in context. Does, does that does Yeah, that yeah it,
0: just got, it just got really abstract in here, though, because if the tool doesn't exist, um, what, are, what are they looking at?
1: Yeah, so if, if a tool doesn't exist, uh, what, what you would have to assume at the beginning is there's some strategic interest in helping a, a user group so um you w- once there's some notion that there's a there is a user group that you want to help um, maybe it's because you want you you know that you want to market a certain area or you know people are uh, are in a niche but or there's a niche out there that you want to serve, but you want to do something unique um, the idea would be to observe them doing whatever it is that that Market niche does. Um, so, if it's shopping for groceries online, or if it's actually shopping for groceries in the store, to observe what a customer is doing, either by what they're doing on the website or what they're doing in the store. How do they make selections? Um, what 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 is their criteria for making selections? What do they struggle with in terms of uh, picking the products or uh, Determining how, how to get out of the store efficiently, or how effective it is in terms of the layout of the website or even the layout of the store. You're, you're making observations about what it is that they're do, trying to do, as well as uh, what pain points they're experiencing doing it. I'm I'm not sure I, I I'm not sure if I answered your question. It, it, I, if I understand you correctly, uh, you uh, don't necessarily see how. You know, just making these general observations about someone's work or activities is going to lead to a, a better website. Uh, well, I'm I'm not saying that. I was
0: just trying to understand how it might work. Um, so I think you explained that really well. That basically you're you're looking at the user in their natural environment and trying to pick up clues uh, that can help you uh, design something to more adequately fit their behavior. Is that right?
1: More, uh, more adequately. Fit their objectives. Yeah, their, their behavior objectives. might be manipulated by existing tools or processes or culture um, that may be artifacts that don't really help them achieve their goals. Um, one of the things that um, I bring up in in the presentation is uh, a concept that Chris Argyris has mentioned, and Chris Argyris is uh, a person that inspired some of the ideas uh, in the fifth discipline. Uh, and that is uh, model one and model two uh, dispositions or type thinking. And uh, model one has the notion of um, win, don't lose, um, don't don't be rational, don't uh, uh, don't express a lot of emotion, um, and unilateral control. Whereas model two is about uh, valid information. Um, it's not it's not the direct opposite of model one because it's not it's not about don't be rational be emotional, but it's uh it doesn't it doesn't ignore uh, the emotional part of uh, cognition or the emotional part of um, processing. So um, it's also about uh, multilateral control. So uh, the goal is not to win and control unilaterally; it's to get valid information and uh really think of uh, allowing multiple actors to control the decision um, so the
0: so how does how does that work to influence design then how do you use those models to to influence design or am i am i skipping ahead on you here sorry
1: <laughs> no i i, I the, the way that would uh contribute to design um would be the next stage we we were talking about define uh where you 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 basically are trying to uh synthesize what it is that people are are doing you define uh tasks and then higher level activity or uh, higher level uh organization of the task and activities and uh then at once you've done that you you uh still in the define stage stage then you begin to um, define what are the real pain points that they're experience what the users are experiencing um, and and there's different ways of doing that. One way of doing that is to dot vote. so rather than one individual in the group having the loudest voice or the um, being mo- the most opinionated about what the pain points are, you effectively let multiple members of the group through uh, voting uh, specific type of voting, which I won't go into because I'm not sure that it it matters what the uh, details are of that. But nonetheless, the the voting uh, values the observations that were made by different individuals, and also values the um, the perception uh, of of the of, of pain from different individuals, because uh, effectively everyone is seeing reality from a somewhat different point of view, but it doesn't mean one view of reality is the correct view of reality. They they may all be uh, viewing just a different angle on reality, and so they can all be valid at the same time. Uh, it doesn't mean they necessarily are, but it means that we, we have to consider uh, that just because someone doesn't think exactly like we do in terms of what is painful um, or what the goal of a user may be, that we still have to consider it. So that's in the defined stage where uh, the notion of model two, uh, multilateral control and not focusing on winning, but uh, focusing on valid information comes into play. In ideation, it it, it is even more obvious because um, ideation incorporates the notion of brainstorming. Uh, normally, when people think about brainstorming, I, I think they're thinking about let's get in a room and come up with the wildest, craziest ideas that we can um, <laughs> so while being imaginative and creative is part of it uh, a bigger part of it I think is uh listening uh to each the, of the individuals that are conveying ideas and building upon the other person's ideas uh so it's 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 not a situation where you want to go into. Uh, wanting to come up with the the best ideas. You want to contribute to the ideas that other people are bringing to the table as well as contribute your own unique ideas in the process. Uh, and there's different ways to control that process. And I, I described some of that in the presentation. Uh, but there there are ways that uh, you can kind of warm up to uh, brainstorming. And and one that I mentioned in the presentation is called Soundball. And it's... Uh, I think it's uncomfortable for a lot of people to try this. But the idea is that you have an imaginary ball. Uh, You begin by making a sound and you pass that ball to one of the participants in the team. That team member then repeats the sound that was just made and passes the ball along. Uh, So when I first did this, my natural inclination was to come up with my own unique sound and uh, so what would happen is when I would receive the ball, a lot of times I would be thinking so much about my sound that I would forget to repeat the sound that the person that passed me, the imaginary ball, had made. Um, after a while, I, I would run out of ideas, and I would more or less be forced to to uh, acknowledge the sound that I'd heard and come up with a sound that somehow was um, generated in my own mind based off the sound that I heard. Um so that process helped me to see uh, that you can be creative and innovative by leveraging the ideas of others rather than just trying to generate them internally. That sounds like it would be really hard. I mean, just to me, I don't know
0: how that sounds to you, James, but that, that game sounds like it'd be difficult.
2: It's uh, it's not the first time I've heard of people using uh, improv exercises to like amp the... Uh, creative juices or get the energy level between a group of people from like level one to like level 10. Uh, I've known people that have kind of been involved with the improv community and they would describe some of the exercises they would go through. And I said, why would you do that? And they said, well, you're about to go on stage. You know, you want everybody to be, um, warmed up, you know, not just physically, but also mentally because the ability to say yes to what other people were throwing at you was pretty important. Um, so, but yeah, I mean, I, I think, uh, if you presented an exercise that like that to some groups that I've worked with in the past, I think there might have been, uh, it would have
0: been a really quiet room. It would
2: have been a quiet room, <laughs> you know? And I think, you know, maybe once people had done it, they might've seen the usefulness in it. So I got to ask like, Brian, how did you get exposed to that? And like, was there a moment in which you said, all right, we're going to try this. And you walked into a room and said, Hey everybody. We're gonna try this out, and how did that go?
1: Yeah, so the the way that I got started uh, with the notion of improv as a as a impetus for, or at least a precursor to brainstorming, uh, was looking into design thinking, uh, and that led me to Stanford's website and Stanford or, or Stanford School of Design, um, and they're one of the uh, biggest schools in terms of uh, being a a um, Promulgator of of design thinking, Audio. Um, I'm not sure if you've heard of that company. That, that I think one of the founders or the founder uh, came from Stanford. But nonetheless, when we were looking at design thinking, I, I looked to them, and there was a presentation, and I can't recall the name of the professor that I was presenting, but he he said as much that uh, using improv games was uh, a good warm up for brainstorming. And he basically said, uh, you, people know not to necessarily you know, start doing a sprint before they've warmed up. And he's saying that it's no different uh, when you're doing a, a different mental exercise. So before you, you really want to get your creative juices going. You want to get in the right frame of mind, uh, a more synthetic uh, type of thinking, a more pattern matching type of thinking, rather than a more analytical. Uh, uh, fragmentary, frag, fragmentary type of thinking. Um,
0: see, see, James, th- this is what we should be doing for the podcast.
1: Is before every
0: single podcast, we should be playing these games to get on the same page. All everybody and the guest, um, like they do on morning shows. I think they just drink beforehand for those morning shows.
2: But what are they drinking? I guess is the question. Well, that's what
0: I want to know. Yeah, we need some of that. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I think that, that sounds makes
2: right. a lot of sense. I think so, that makes a lot they, of
1: sense.
2: I. Uh, my wife was reading a book about creativity and templates for creativity, and one of the one of the concepts that came up in the book, and I have to remember the title for the show notes. But uh, one of the one of the processes was uh, to impose constraints or to remove elements from the situation, and that seemed to prompt a lot of uh, creative input. And I'm wondering if like the same principle isn't at play with with some of these uh with with like the soundball.
1: Did you did you say remove constraints?
2: Yeah oh, no, add constraints. Oh, add or, constraints. Or yeah, they're... I was
1: I was getting ready to say, yeah. Um yeah, I think being put on uh some rails helps to provide focus. I I think some you know, I think nationally people think, hey, you start with a blank piece of paper anything is possible. Yep. And part of the problem with that is everything is possible and you can't possibly think of everything. So yeah, I think that definitely uh, relates because when when someone presents an idea, it gives you constraints rather than, hey, i got to come up with an idea, and you're basically starting blank or you have to create something in your head to start with. And, and what you're saying is starting with a constraint helps.
2: Yeah, like if I walk into – this happens to me all the time, and it could just be advancing age, but I'll walk into a restaurant, a fast food establishment especially – and you look up and yeah, I've never, you know, if I don't go there a whole, whole often, uh, I'll look up at the menu and I'll be like overwhelmed. And it's like, I don't know what to pick. I mean, you know, and I got <laughs> to spend five minutes figuring out, I don't know what, I don't know what to pick. But if, you know, if you've been there enough times, you're like, okay, you know. But like when you first get there, if there's like a 20 menu items, there's so many possibilities. You're, I don't know how to make a decision.
0: Uh, the where, menu, the menu affects you too, though, James, like I, that's what I find. Like if I sit down and maybe you're, maybe you're different, but there are certain menus I look at and I'm like, I don't even know where to start yep. because it's just, there are no category, there's no category, no categorization. There are no, um, there's nothing directing you to a certain part of it. That that's much, much harder for me. Is that the, is that how you are?
2: Are you asking me or Brian?
0: You J- James. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Like I think, um, like, if you go to Cheesecake Factory, right, they've got this menu with, I don't know how many oh, items Oh, it's in huge. It. Yeah, and it's it's not that they don't break down by category, but it's really hard to fit all the categories, you know, in, like, a single glance. Or, like every, oh, I'm sorry, all the menu items for a single category in a single glance. So when you're looking at the page for salads, there's, like, 15 of them. And so you've got to spend time evaluating each one. Uh, and I think that's just part of the overwhelm of, you know, there's too many choices. But, like, if you go to Chipotle, you know, your choices are pretty limited, Right. I think that was probably deliberate on their part.
0: That makes sense to me.
2: Yeah. I think we and, just dumbed and,
0: down the conversation. Uh, a geez, uh, uh, <laughs> <I'm> sorry. <laughs> but, but I, I, I Brian, think that's, Brian was like coming here to be smart. <laughs> oh, <laughs> that's, that's
1: <not> <laughs> but nonetheless, I do. Pre, I, 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 I've heard of the same thing, James. That um, yeah, provide, providing constraints is a is a is a good way. Ironically, I think to, to to uh, start creative juices flowing.
2: Yeah, so, um, but I am curious because the more I hear you talk, the more I think it sounds like somebody's been like you're you're deep in this, and you say your conceptual grasp on all the concepts are pretty strong. And I think I'll speak for myself. Like I'm having I'm having difficulty keeping it all in my head, so I have to keep trying to drill yep. down into concrete examples. Um, so. At some point in your career, I, I'm, I'm thinking you you were in a, in a work situation, and these you were exposed to these concepts, and they became valuable to you because you saw an insight about how they could be applied to what was going on in your situation. Uh, whether or not you had the ability to at that point, uh, I don't know. But I'm I'm guessing at some point you probably you, you saw something. You said there's something here, and I got to get into this. Can you talk about like when that happened for you? What was the moment you said, oh? This is something I need to know.
1: I don't know if I can identify a particular point in time, but uh, I, I felt like um, there, there, there was two, at least two things I can think of. One, when I was, a, uh, when I was acting as a project manager uh, early on, I really wanted to figure out how to do it correctly. My goal was uh, to do that as much as anything. And uh, we were using a traditional waterfall process, and I wanted to do that process to uh, the best of my ability. And what I found is that uh, that created a lot of uh, spreadsheets, and I was spending an enormous amount of time managing spreadsheets and not really working with people, and that didn't seem right. I didn't have an insight into how to do it better at that point, but I at least felt there was the problem. At the same time, I uh well I, I guess actually a little bit earlier i happened to move into a uh, arts and craft home uh it's a four square and um, i wanted to buy furniture that kind of fit the house so i ended up uh buying some some modern day stickly furniture and uh so i didn't it was mainly to fit the architecture but uh, years later um, i took a class at NC State, it was on um, basically information systems and management decision, management decision control systems. Uh, and in that class, I was hearing some concepts that uh, seemed to relate to uh, one of the people that was uh, an inspiration for the arts and craft movement. And his name was John Ruskin. And I actually now consider John Ruskin an early systems thinker. Um, so when I was in that class, uh, I impressed the professor enough to give me a lot of creative freedom. And he basically told me I could the, – the course was over for me, for me uh, about midway through and that I could do what I wanted. Uh, and he also wanted me to be an assistant uh, instructor. So I took that opportunity to see if there was some connection between some of the things that he was talking about in his class – um, one of the things that he brought up was Christopher Alexander's, um, uh, a pattern language, which was written in the seventies. And it turns out to be the inspiration for, uh, design patterns, uh, written by the gang of four. I, I think uh, a lot of people in the software community are familiar yep. with the design patterns book, but, uh, it turns out, uh, Christopher Alexander's ideas closely resemble the ideas of John Ruskin. And, uh, both of those notions correlate with, um, uh, design thinking as well as, uh, agile software development. Uh both of those concepts are related to what I would call general systems theory or systems thinking. Um, and yeah, I, I still need to work on, um, providing some better examples for some of the abstractions that, that, I, that I, that I'm speaking about. But, uh, Iterative and incremental development uh, is is part of what Christopher Alexander was about and what he is about. And for Ruskin, seeing the whole instead of the parts was something that he was fundamentally about. Uh, and both were about, uh, in that context, they were both about emulating what they see in nature. Uh, and in nature, they, they saw this iterative and incremental development. And uh, so for Ruskin, it was... And emulate what nature does—not necessarily the exact form, but the process. And Christopher Alexander was the same. He said uh, that we should emulate the, the the process that one observes in nature. In fact, he he's identified fifteen structure-preserving properties that he sees over and over again in nature. And uh, he he basically is saying that if you follow, if you preserve these these different structures through through transformations that you'll be emulating nature without necessarily uh, creating a, a exact replica of it. And um, so I think that, in, in essence, in some ways, is what is going on with incre- incremental uh, uh, development. One of the fundamental differences is uh, that Christopher Alexander says that incremental development isn't enough by itself, that... Uh, natural forces uh, applied to incremental development doesn't necessarily encourage you to preserve uh, structures that are there that you want to maintain. Um, And I, and I believe John Ruskin had the same idea. He, he was against uh, renovating structures, uh, older structures, because he he felt like in the innovation, um, the actual weathering and the processes that help make the structure unique were lost in the, uh, in the In the effort to preserve the structure, but, so but I, I, nature, I went off on a big tangent sorry
0: no, no, well that's very interesting, I and mean, that was part of what you talked about in in the in the talk was um, these patterns from nature and how uh, they encourage a structure or a system or, or whatever if i'm if I 'm getting this right. It seems to me that just as important as building the structure, which is what we try to do with iterative development, I think a lot of times we think about adding features and adding things to a system. um, Just as important as that, in my mind, is what you were talking about the natural forces that can erode a a system or or a structure um, or or hurt a structure or, in fact, make it stronger. Um, And I wonder how that how that concept applies within agile development. It, I, guess, I guess there are times when people come in and say, look, there's a problem with this application um, or the stakeholder comes in and says, we need to just lop off this particular set of functionality. I don't see it happen very often. Um, but in nature, that happens quite often.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, in, in terms of, I, I can even think like the uh, there's a need for uh, a burn in a forest from time to time, uh, right?
0: Exactly. Yeah,
1: and, and sometimes in our effort to uh, not have a fire, we actually encourage a larger blaze in the end because more and more uh, undergrowth, un- more, yeah, more exactly. undergrowth is there to feed the provides feed the next more one. fuel. Yeah, right. Yeah. So um, you're absolutely right. If we keep adding and adding to something without maintaining the essence and the focus of the software, we Uh, ultimately we can uh, effectively corrupt the, the uh, software through software bloat so that it's usability declines because it's no longer efficient and no longer satisfying, even if possibly it could be effective.
0: Well, and maybe that's what some of these folks are trying to get back to with ideas like refactoring and, and things like that. Maybe, maybe that's kind of what they're trying to do is figure out how to go back and pare down, you know, trim up the tree and, uh, all that kind of stuff, cut the undergrowth a little bit. I don't know. It it just seems like um, what I see is that we get two or three years into a product and somebody new comes on board and we want to build the entire thing again with a new design because for some reason, the new people that come in are always more prepared (laughs) to create a new whatever it was than the old people. And that's just not true. That's just not the way things work. Uh, Usually you end up making many of the same mistakes and regressing in a lot of ways.
1: I absolutely agree with that. I I think that is uh, refactoring, as you mentioned, I think is one of the fundamental ways that we can preserve uh, the good that exists in something and still uh, progress it forward in terms of maintainability or some enhancement. Um, in fact, uh, one of the complaints about design patterns is that uh, novice programmers will try to use them everywhere where... Um, so the author's intent was for those patterns to be applied uh, when there was a need to pull out some dynamic, more dynamic, um, some part of the program that was changing more often than some other part of the program. So how do you separate the more static part of the program from the part of the program that's changing more often? And that can be done through refactoring and through uh yeah it, that can be done through refactoring. Um, I think par- part of the one of the reasons uh, I believe that people want to start over is because refactoring wasn't done for years on a program, and now you have this huge monolith where it's extremely fragile to change anything, because the parts that do change more often were not separated from those parts that were more stable. And to do it at a, a, la- a late point in time. Seems next to impossible, so people want to throw up their hands and say, "Let's start over." And I'm not, I'm not sure exactly what the solution for that is. If refactoring wasn't done in the beginning, other than to to uh, take what is there and begin somewhat of a slow and painful process of trying to uh, pull out some of the essence of what was good about the program, or uh, like they want to do, starting over.
2: I, I think the the last show that we recorded we actually were talking about our favorite technical books. And actually the two that we sort of pinned on was uh, Michael Feathers' uh, Working Effectively with Legacy Code and Martin Fowler's Refactoring. And I know for me, like it, at least the, the Feathers book uh, was all about how you're put in a situation where you do have this creaking monstrosity and you're told, it, you know, we got to make changes to it. But at the same time, you're like, well, it hasn't seen, you know, it hadn't seen any tests. So if I refactor it, I might break it. And so it never gets refactored, right? And this, so this book is just a way to deal with that. So yeah, it can be super intimidating. But I mean, the good news is, I mean, I think we've, as a community, like we've, we've got some pretty good uh, guides on how to go about it, which is encouraging, right? Because there's, there's lots of software out there that is in need of Loving care, right?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I, I, yeah. I, I Go go ahead. Go ahead, Paul. Oh, I was interrupting you. Go ahead. No, I was just going to echo uh, what what uh, James was saying. Uh, we have some great minds uh, in, in the software community uh, that that are leading the way philosophically on how to to deal with these issues. I, I, I find it amazing that some uh, of some of the, some of the the real innovators in the software community picked up on Christopher Alexander's ideas because Christopher Alexander is more or less rejected in the architectural community. Um, they, they just did not accept uh, his, his way, his process of developing structures. So uh, and, and software for so long was uh, set on the waterfall model, which was, was just not, the, the concept is not in, iterative and incremental and uh, involved refactoring at all. So um, it's pretty amazing to me, and it's exciting that uh, our community in particular, the software development community, has uh, adopted such radical measures and that they have been accepted in such a wide measure, particularly Agile. It's, in the, just in the last 10 years, it's, it's seen incredible growth and acceptance in, in some really traditional industries. So I'm amazed
0: yeah i am too it's it, and um there's probably a, a long way we could go and could talk about agile i, I want to kind of try to pull us back to the human-centered design part of this um in let james did you do you have any other thoughts on on what we've been talking about here
2: uh i did have a question on when we use the term iterative development you know i think there's probably many people who are listening that are kind of getting nod their head like I was. Like, yeah, I, I know what that means. But um, and if this is completely extraneous, we can we don't have to include it. But uh, I wonder if we could talk for a second about what we mean by an iterative an iterative development process versus not.
1: Yeah. So I'm thinking about two things. It, it, typically, you hear iterative and incremental um, together. Uh, so it's not just iterative in the sense of, uh, you develop one iteration and then you get requests for, uh, some new features and then you add those new features. It's iterative and it's incremental in the sense that, uh, you develop one version of the software and you get feedback. Feedback is, is incredibly important in terms of not only what you can add, but what you can fix. What, what, what is what did we get wrong with the initial uh the initial version of the, of the program so you can lop off those things that have no value you can focus on the things that do have value and so you you're you're building up something in an incremental fashion not just for the innovations of the future or the enhancements of the future but for the existence of the original thing at the very beginning and I don't know if I really answered your question James
2: I think the the key distinction was feedback so I think okay. you I think yeah I think you nailed it
1: Yeah well um the feedback the feedback uh is fundamental to uh design thinking in terms of um we were talking about the different stages of design thinking uh the last stage uh is to test um we we already talked about prototype or or ideate we missed we haven't spoken about prototype yet the last step is to test and that's where you're getting feedback Uh, and effectively that leads directly back into the empathize stage Uh, and in the presentation i have an overlay of design thinking and human-centered uh, design, the, the different steps that are normally associated with those two concepts and show how they are uh, interrelated. And like we were just saying, it, it, fundamental to the design thinking process is the feedback loop. And that relates to systems thinking as well because systems thinking says that cause can become effect and uh, or, or effect can become cause. Uh, and that's what happens. You, 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 you are inspired to do something and then you put that something out into the environment. You get that feedback and then that actually becomes the feedback, becomes the motivation for the next iteration.
0: Yeah, and that's a, that's a lot like uh, lean startups are doing as well as from, from, from my understanding. Put out the minimum viable product and see if it works and, and go from there.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, I think that the notion of a minimum viable product is, is really crucial because it lays down the foundation of get the feedback early. And uh, the, the iterative nation, nature of the process says often. Uh, and I, I, I'm not sure that someone just following an agile process necessarily is thinking how early they need to get that feedback. Because one of the aspects of agile software development is one of the measures of it is working software. So, if the emphasis on working software, the thought may be, let's start coding as soon as possible and get a working version of the software out as soon as possible. Whereas design thinking says, get something to the uh, user as soon as possible, whether it's software or not. And, and in fact, design uh, typically in the design community, it's thought about as paper prototypes. It's like, what is the least expensive way we can introduce what we believe would be a solution for the pain points that we've observed. And so, yeah, you know, cutting out paper and creating a uh, a simulation or a prototype of what we eventually intend to uh, code would be one of the first steps.
0: Yeah, I really liked your discussion on that, and I think in that talk we got into kind of a conversation about some of the benefits of doing a paper prototype as opposed to using, you know, a mock-up tool of some kind, basalmic or whatever, whatever it is. And one of the things that you mentioned was that people can get really stuck on what type of component something is, um, or or not even not even have questions that they would otherwise if you are providing one of those mockups as opposed to a paper prototype, which is just very vague and abstract.
1: Exactly. In the, in the past, at my company, uh, we would do mockups, but the mockups were intended to look, to look like the final product, and the problem with that is the the person that's observing that can start to notice things that aren't really what we were trying to um verify they might notice the the size of the text on a button or how large a button is or the color of the, of, of a particular component whereas we we're trying to focus purely on functionality at that stage of de- development and so with a paper prototype uh Number one, you you're not you, you know the person who's looking at it knows this is not how it's going to look on the computer screen. Uh, I'll, I'll, the, the mock-up tools do a, a good job, I think, of making things look um, unfinished. But uh, a potential problem with the, the mock-up tools is the user interaction. The, the person using the tool is going to have to interact with the, the – the, so even if they are trying to interact with the, the uh, mock-up, they're going to have to learn the mock-up tool, or at least they're going to be using some of the exact actions or very prescriptive actions to accomplish their goals. Whereas uh, with a paper prototype, it's mm, conceived of as much more notional in terms of how the final interaction will actually turn out. Unfortunately, we're running out of of time here. Um,
0: What thoughts do you want to leave us with, James? What other questions do you have before before I ask that?
2: I'm... mm. I don't think I have any pressing questions about that yet, but I think there's one tickling at the back of my mind. So you go ahead with yours. <laughs> if it bubbles up, it's going right. to come out.
0: Well, well, uh, you know, Brian, what what are some of the, what are the the final thoughts you wanted to to close up with here? I'm not sure that we've done your presentation justice. Um, it looks to me like you put an incredible amount of work into this, and you know when we ask you about when when was it that you that these ideas you you had them and you decided to take them from abstract concepts into practice, I would imagine this is sixteen years of work, and it 's just kind of all consolidated onto some slides here, and uh, over time you tried little pieces of this and and it grew into something bigger. but I just really appreciate the work here. I hope our listeners will go out and actually look at the slides because there 's Some really great information here.
1: I really appreciate that, Paul. Uh, I I would would agree with you that this has been synthesized over over time. Uh, I didn't put all these concepts together at one moment in time, that's for sure. Um, The thing that I think I would want to suggest to listeners is, number one, if you want to help people, you can't assume you know what their problems are. You can't even necessarily assume what their goals are. It's good to actually get into their shoes and either do what they're doing or observe what they're doing without very much judgment at the beginning. And uh, I would encourage people not to do it solo. Get other people to do those observations as well and collect their feedback because we don't always have the same perspective and other perspectives can be valid at the same time that ours can be valid. Uh, secondly, uh, we we can't necessarily tell people what to do even when we know what the problem is. The reason is there are many different ways to solve a problem, and it's only by taking the best of the various ideas that people have that we can come up with something that's closer to an optimal solution. So, for example, with the, the notion of hill climbing, the, the assumption is that the hill that you happen to be climbing up may not be the highest hill that there is, relatively close by. And so, getting the opinions of others about how to solve a problem, and contributing to those ideas and building those up, can can get us closer to a more optimal solution than if we assume that we know how to solve someone's problem. Uh, and so, I think those two concepts together uh, form a very powerful uh, coupling.
0: That's awesome. That's cool. Yeah, that's good stuff. And, and thoughts to remember, um, whether you're you're looking at design or or any any really any group conversation, I think trying to achieve an objective together to to look at other people's perspectives because they really really can help and and help you get to that objective. Brian, thank you so much. Brian works at ARA. Do you want to tell us a little bit about ARA before we go here? Amer- Applied Research Associates.
1: Yeah. Uh, w- one of the biggest things is uh, Applied Research Associates uh, values freedom, and they, they've uh, given me the freedom to figure out how to best serve our, our customers and our users. Uh, we believe that uh, not only are we in existence to make money, but we're here to serve others, to, s- to serve our users, and to serve our country. And uh, giving me the freedom to explore how to best serve our customers and users has been one of the reasons that I've been able to put some of these concepts together. That's
0: awesome. And and you gave me their mission, what what ARA's mission is, and it says this is what we do for our customers, to solve problems of national importance by providing science and engineering research, technical support, services, specialty products, and integrated solutions. I would imagine ARA, like everyone else, is looking for really great minds and really good technical folks right now. Uh, So I want to throw it out there to our our podcast listeners um, ARA sounds like a really interesting place to get involved with. Um, but thank you so much, Brian. I really appreciate your time. This is terrific. Uh, listeners, make sure to go out and check out the the slides on our website, reflectionasaservice.com. And, um, and thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Brian. Paul and James, I really
1: appreciate the opportunity. It was a pleasure.
0: Yeah, for us, too. Thank you very much for joining us. Once again, my name is Paul Merrill. I was joined by James Jeffers. Uh, I work with a company called Beaufort Fairmont. I'm the founder of Beaufort Fairmont. We work to rid the world of bad code. We do that through automated testing. We write software to test software. When your team needs automated testing, test suites, and frameworks built, consulting for automation projects, or training and coaching to introduce automated testing to your team, we can help. We can jumpstart you with any level, jumping in at any level, into in end tests, integration tests, unit testing. We work with a variety of open source tools like Robot Framework, Cucumber, Selenium WebDriver, and others. We're proficient in C, Java, JavaScript, Objective C, and others. Call us right now at 984 244 2313 or email us at info at BeaufortFairmont.com to start automating your testing today. We're also brought to you by Code Providence.
2: Uh, I am Code Providence. I am a small one person consultancy, and I help people write software that has a big impact.
0: All right. Thank you all very much for joining us, and we'll see you next time.